Welcome back to the Clean Water Pod, the show about the challenges and successes in restoring and protecting water quality. My name is Jeff Burkus, and I'm talking to dedicated professionals across the country to build an understanding of how policy and science work together to meet the goals of the Clean Water Act for fishable, swimmable, and drinkable water quality in our nation's waters. I'm joined by my colleague, Sarah Schwartz from the EPA to help define a couple of terms for our show today. Sarah, are you ready to talk about the first implementation arm of the Clean Water Act, the National Pollution Discharge Elimination System or NPDES program? Yes, I am. Yeah, we love our acronyms. We're going to get into it. Yeah, it is a mouthful. I mean, for those of you that thought that TMDL or total maximum daily load was a lot to say, I've actually never heard anybody say National Pollution Discharge Elimination System very much. It all Everybody refers to it as NPDES or NIPDES uh, for even shorter, right? Yeah, definitely. Well, there are a couple of terms that we're going to need to know. And I, and I will tell you up front, this is sort of a complicated area, right? The, the people that we're going to hear from, there's it's its own little world. But I think there's a couple terms that we can kick off with that will really help us understand as we get into this. Yeah, let's start with point source discharges. So the easiest way to think about point source discharges is that they are a release of liquid waste from pipes or ditches into a water body. But they can also include concentrated animal feeding operations or even a release of pesticides from airplanes. It's important to note, though, that this doesn't mean pollution is being dumped straight into a water body from these point sources. There are permits that regulate how much of various pollutants can be released into the water body. And the permits usually result in the permittee treating their wastewater before it enters the water body. And in this episode, our interviewees will get into the levels of treatment for point source discharges. Yeah, great. I always, uh, one of the things a lot of people will say is a point source is like you can point at it, but actually sometimes it's just a little more accurate to say that it has a permit associated with it. I think you did a really nice job of explaining exactly what that is. But what is our second term that'll help us out for today's show? The second term is discharger. A discharger is just the entity that is releasing the point source pollution to a water body and therefore required to get a permit. Some common dischargers are wastewater treatment plants or factories. You know, Sarah, I actually did have a question that came up when I was talking to Joe um, from Rhode Island, and he mentioned WOTUS, but I think he was speaking specifically about a water of the U.S. rule as applied to in Rhode Island. But you hear the term WOTUS or Waters of the U.S. What is it that that means? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up, Jeff. Um, that is an important thing to clarify. So there is a federal definition of water of the waters of the U.S., which informs which waters are covered by the Clean Water Act. And as you were mentioning, states may have additional definitions. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We see that in other parts of the Clean Water Act, too, where the federal government may have a certain baseline or guideline for what a standard is, and a state may draw that standard a little bit more restrictive than the federal guidelines because they, they see that as fit. So you may have state-specific guidelines and the federal-specific guidelines. So it's just important to kind of keep in mind that uh, Joe was talking specifically about Rhode Island. Great, Sarah. Well, quick and easy today from you. You'll be back next month as we talk about the non-point source programs. To help us understand permitting better, we're talking to two professionals with vast experience in the permitting program. Joe Haberick from Rhode Island and Jeff Poupart from North Carolina. 
extensive knowledge about permitting. They were incredible guests. I hope you guys enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoy talking to them and learning from them about all the intricacies of permitting. So here is my interview with Joe and Jeff. So Joe and Jeff, welcome to the Clean Water Pod. Joe, let's start with you. How did you get into this work? Sure. First of all, thanks for having me. Um, so I started in, in this field. Uh, I went to school in chemical engineering uh, to the University of Rhode Island uh, in the early 90s. And during my time at the university, uh, they had a kind of a cooperative agreement with the Rhode Island Department of Environmental Management. Uh, it was kind of the heyday of the EPA's pollution prevention efforts. So actually for three years while I was at the university, I worked in that pollution prevention program, did a lot of uh, industrial audits. And then you know, come 94, uh, I graduated. Uh, after roughly three to four years, I kind of realized I really wanted to get into the public sector. I felt like uh, there's a lot more to offer the general public uh, working in, in the field. And so I and went from private industry to uh, the Rhode Island Department of Environmental Management in the Office of Water Resources, and I've been here for 25-plus years uh, since. Great. And Jeff, what about you down in North Carolina? How did you get into this work, and why? Where did you go to school and all that fun stuff? Uh, sure. I went up to I went to college up in uh, Michigan and uh, majored in chemistry, and um, that got me into a contract lab, which which then led me to industry in a contract lab that supported wastewater and became a backup operator. And then when I relocated to North Carolina, I, I ended up getting into state government because I had that, that experience from being the, the uh, wastewater operator and, and, and a lab supervisor, and then just kept going. For, and luckily I started I, I, industry in uh, industrial pretreatment also doing the, uh, uh, which is the, uh, it gives you all the aspects of the NPDES program because it's similar with the allocations and the, uh, and all the regulations. So I think the industrial pretreatment program, and then it just kept kept moving up through the program, um, through the MPDS program, stayed with state, state government for you know 20 years and just kept slowly moving up. So this work is kind of interesting because we are now at the, at the phase of talking through the Clean Water Act, where we are talking about the, the programs that are the implementation arms of the Clean Water Act. And so NPDS, everybody just says NPDS, or some people say NIPTES, uh, if if they want to be cute, what does that mean when we refer to this program? What are we talking about? What are the basics of this program? And Jeff, why don't we stick with you and start off? How do you describe the basics of the MPDS program? To- well, I, I think what, what we did was we we figured out uh, <clears throat> what the rivers could support, and we 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 found out that we got everybody under a permit and everybody using decent technology. Which you know now that seems like it's been a matter of fact for a while, but it really took a long time. So so we know. What the similar capacity of the rivers are we have inspections to support the permits we have good permits we have everybody using decent technology with inspection I, I, it took it took a long time to get there but that was really the the hallmark of it and, and also not allowing a new discharges you know at least making that bar a little bit higher than just i want some more capacity in the river at least making them you know show a reason for that and uh you know we take that for granted now but that was a long and we still we still occasionally find people that are straight piping or or, or not properly permitted but that was the first, you know, 30, 40 years was just getting everybody, getting us to understand what, what was going on in, in the water bodies and getting uh, everybody permitted and, you know, sampling procedures and everything to, to make sure that that whole system, that plan, do, check, act of the system is, is, is in place. 
Okay, you used a couple of terms there. So let's let's slow down just a second sure, to find sure. that, right? So you guys have been in this business a long time. Those those things kind of come natural, but assimilative capacity. Why don't we start there? What does that mean? How would you describe that to a general audience? Sure. So uh, we and we use the drought flow to say the worst possible conditions of the water body. You, you know, a, a, a seven year drought condition or ten year drought condition, and we say that what could what what amount of nutrients or oxygen consuming waste or uh, other pollutants, heavy metals or whatever, could the river or or, or lake or whatever absorb and, and not have an effect on the, uh, the the uses of that water body, which are typically you know anywhere from from drinking water, but just supporting the ecosystem. So. Our ability to understand that says that that this town can have a million gallons of this strength waste and and shouldn't have too much effect on the uh, the river itself or, or or downstream communities. So that's the assimilative capacity: is how much can it assimilate? How much of each pollutant can the river assimilate without being affected theoretically? And then you you use a term called straight pipe or straight piping. So why don't we uh, at least just just sure, define that now before we get any further? Uh, sure, that's uh, people who don't have any permit or any technology at all. We we still find them surprisingly uh, where people have uh, have a source of waste and and just uh, don't have any uh, any controls whatsoever. It's just a you know a buried pipe in the river, or sometimes it's a legacy thing that they didn't know about, or sometimes it's 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 an on purpose uh, situation where they they don't have uh, any technologies, no permit, and, and we still find those. And the, and when the program first started, of course, you know, 30 years ago, you were finding a lot more of that, uh, you know, even even large communities not having any any systems in place. But now, you know, it's just a little pockets out in the more rural areas. So, Joe, let's let's go to you. So how do you guys in Rhode Island have your program set up? So there are different types of permits that you write. So do you guys have things split up in terms of, of that and maybe talk about what are the major types of permits that are written and then maybe the individual components that you get into as you construct one of these? Sure, absolutely. And uh, actually, maybe first, I, I would just maybe just build off a little bit of what uh, Jeff had, had said, just to, to lay kind of the basic groundwork. And in Rhode Island, we, we are cute here. We we don't use, we don't spell out the acronym R-I-P-P-E-S. We use RIPPES, what we call it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think really the way I would capture in one sentence or two, what the, the NIPTES program is, is basically it's a program that regulates point source discharges of pollutants to waters of the state in, in Rhode Island uh, on the federal NPPES level to waters of the U.S. So a few key terms there, point sources. Uh, so what is a point source? So the traditional point source would be a pipe. You know, that's the easiest one. Other, other maybe lesser known point sources could be a, a drainage ditch or a eroded channel. It's basically, if you can point at the flow of wastewater and say, that's where it's coming from, that's a point source. So that's the first term. Uh, the discharge of pollutants. I mean, pollutants, I think, is pretty self-explanatory. Um, the obvious ones, you know, uh, metals, organic pollutants, but it could also be uh, temperature. Temperature is a thermal pollutant. So that's point source discharge of pollutants. And then finally, to waters of the state. Basically, in Rhode Island, we have a very broad uh, definition of waters of the state. It basically encompasses uh, any any waters, any surface waters that you can point at, other than if it was a, say, an impoundment that was specifically built for treatment of either, say, stormwater, wastewater. Uh, you know, if it was a treatment pond, that would not be a water of the state. But 
essentially any other surface water would be water to say. So kind of the, the basic background, you know, that's kind of how, you know, when you're thinking NIFTIs, it would be those three key elements. Again, point source discharge of pollutants to waters of the state. Now, as far as Rhode Island, obviously we're a small state. Uh, so that gives us some advantages uh, in terms of kind of how we set up the program ourselves. We've got a very, very small, tightly compressed office. We just have one centralized office. We don't have regional offices. So, you know, we have the kind of the luxury, if you will, of being able to coordinate, you know, all of these efforts uh, internally. But as far as the different types of permits we issue, uh, there's kind of two general categories, big major categories of, of pollutants, that's uh, permits, that's an individual permit and the general permit. And it's just as they sound, individual permits are issued to specific facilities. So if you have XYZ treatment plant, XYZ treatment plant would get a permit just for that facility. And then there's the second type of permit are general permits. So those are general permits that are issued to classes of discharges, not to a specific facility. So in Rhode Island, we have a variety of general permits. Some of them are in uh, industrial stormwater. We actually call that the multi-sector industrial general permit, MSGP. Uh, we also have a general permit for uh, non-contact cooling water, and then you know a handful of other general permits. So those, when you're talking about general permits, you know we would issue a general permit that would cover certain types of facilities, say not facilities that discharge non-contact cooling water, and then they get coverage under those individual facilities get coverage under that general permit through a, a, a separate application process. So that's general permits backing up to the individual permits. Those can then further be broken down into two subtypes of permits, and that's major facilities and minor facilities. Uh, the general rule of thumb is that a major facility would have a flow of greater, equal to or greater than 1 million gallons per day. And as a general rule of thumb, uh, minor facilities would have a lower flow. Although in specific instances, if there was a facility that, that had a, a smaller flow, but it was a a very highly concentrated discharge or say particularly problematic type of pollutant, they could also be considered a major permit also. So Jeff, take me through the basics of what writing a permit looks like. So what are you looking at? Particularly, we in the last episode talked about the total maximum daily load program. And so that would probably be step number one or close to it of what you're looking at in terms of information uh, to help you write a permit. But talk talk me through what you're looking at to try to develop one of these permits. Well, well you know, we usually start with the the, the, uh, the previous permit, the ones that's expiring, of course, but uh, looking at a reasonable potential analysis, which is a, uh, you know, it's a, a breakdown of the last several years of monitoring from that particular facility. And, and, um, and pollutant scans for things that aren't necessarily in their permit, but that they are checked for occasionally, you know, hundreds of extra chemicals and seeing if there's anything in there that's that's changed that suddenly is, is at the level where maybe it could be having an impact and, and calculating um, calculating it from the assembly capacity from the uh, river's carrying capacity, figuring out if you need to put a limit or or additional monitoring in, in that next permit, not, not just uh, to support protection of the river. You know, there's a lot of the uh, standard boilerplate conditions, and some of the things are sort of templated, but but that's the main the main focus is uh, looking at the staff reports, making sure the the last inspections show that the plant's supporting 
and 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 finding out where those pollutant loads are and they change from time to time sometimes uh the river is uh listed as a is impaired for for a pollutant and it's time or there's a focus on that that particular section of, of water body with some other dischargers maybe that we need to, to crank down because the river's showing some some impacts and and we need to reduce those limits so so that's the the, the meat of it a lot of it is you know, repeating the last permit, but that but the really needs to take a hard look at every at every permit cycle to see what's going on every five year cycle. Jeff, maybe we stick with you and let me ask: Can you give me some examples of the types of facilities that are applying to to North Carolina for these permits? So, I would imagine that you would have a wide range of industry, and maybe some people would be even surprised as to to what uh, some of those industries could be, but also. You know, are we talking about agricultural lands? Do they fit in in this anywhere? I mean, North Carolina's got a got a big area. Are they covered uh, in any aspect under some of these permits? Uh, what about our wastewater treatment facilities that are that are in our towns? Like, wh- who are applying for these permits? Sure, I, the the vast majority of the permits are actually issued to municipalities. Uh, surprisingly few uh, major industrial permits because most of the uh, the thrust of the Clean Water Act has been to get large industries into the pretreatment program, which would involve that they discharge then to a municipality who has its own control mechanism over them. But that gives you that second layer of protection. So it's called an indirect discharger. Mostly in, in North Carolina, it's it's municipalities um, ranging in size from small towns to, to large, you know, large urban areas with, with those industries discharging many of them to them. Not, not to say that we don't have, I, I think, over 50 uh, major industrial and that's everything from chemical plants, large food processing plants, steam electric plants, th- that type of industrial mix. Have, some of those have direct dischargers, just direct discharges to to the river. But And then the agricultural, actually, because there's a lot of exemptions in the Clean Water Act for agriculture and that we have, a, we have an enormous uh, confined animal industry in, in North Carolina. But surprisingly, only about 10 or 15 of them have an NPDES permit because if they haven't had a discharge usually during a, a large storm event or if they had a failure they're exempt from the uh from the NPDS program and, and we do have a state permit on those but but not an NPDS permit so and then stormwater is, an, is another aspect of the NPDS program which we're kind of we haven't talked about we're talking more about the point source but there's a lot of stormwater uh permits that also are on another layer so you have a lot of municipalities MS4 and all them and in industries with their own stormwater permits but and then, uh, you know, you have your really small systems, which are your apartment complexes, your strip malls, even individual homes uh, in, in North Carolina, because we have some soils that won't allow uh, perking. They have a, a, a direct discharge and an actual hold an NPDES permit, even as a single family house. So it's a huge range of people, probably 8,000, you know, five or 5,000 permits of different types. Joe, I want to tie this back to our previous episode where we talked about TMDLs specifically. So I want to, what do you do when you are writing a permit and that facility happens to be in a watershed where Rhode Island has completed a total maximum daily load document? Sure. Yeah, I think uh, just to build build off of a little bit of, of what Jeff said earlier, as far as um, you know, what components go into writing a permit, and then I'll kind of tie it into your question on on the TMDL document. So, you know, when you're writing, developing a permit, um, whether it's a a individual permit or a general permit, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you kind of have to go through the same uh, three basic steps in terms of developing permit limits. Uh, The first one is water quality based limits. And that's where kind of TMD, the TMDL component will, will come involved into play. 
I'll get to that in a minute. So water quality based limits. The second component would be a technology based limit, uh, which is basically you look at federal effluent limitation guidelines or ELGs, uh, which are kind of, you could think of it as a minimum level of treatment or uh, on a, a kind of if you're thinking of it of the, from the other side of the coin, a maximum pollutant level that could be discharged for a given type of, uh, of industry and discharge. So that's where um, you know, the federal government has gone through, looked at the various types of treatment technologies, costs. They do some statistical analysis on that and they, they establish these minimum technology uh, treatment levels that would apply anywhere in the country, whether you discharge to a huge river or a, a very large estuary or to a, a, a small stream. So that's the second one, technology standards. The third one is best professional judgment limits. And those are the ba basically the limits that, that don't get captured in either water quality or technology-based limits. Um, based on the permit writer's best professional judgment, uh, they deem that a limit's necessary. So those are the three general type, you know, those are the three types of limits that must be included in, in every type of permit. And in some instances, uh, well, I should say not must be included, but must be evaluated for every type of permit. Because uh, in some instances, you might determine that there's no need, there are no technology-based limits that apply. So in those cases, you would just apply a, a water quality or best professional judgment limit. So now, as far as the TMDL question, really water quality-based limits would address the TMDL issue. So in Rhode Island, um, if there was a, a facility that was discharging to a water quality impaired water body, so that's a water body that does not meet the designated uh, water quality standards, a TMDL would be developed. If that TMDL is developed and, and ultimately approved by EPA, that specific TMDL would have what's called waste load allocations. And that waste load allocation is identifies how many pounds of that pollutant could be discharged to that water body for that given facility. And it will look at all dischargers. Any point source discharge to that water body would get a waste load allocation. Non-point source discharge uh, sources of pollutants would get what's called a load allocation. They look at all the waste load allocations, the load allocations, and come up with the acceptable levels for each source that would enable the water body to meet water quality standards. So in Rhode Island, when there is a TMDL that's approved, uh, that TMDL must be incorporated into the uh, RIPDES permit as a water quality based limit. Uh, there's what, what you call a fact sheet or a statement of basis uh, that, that kind of is the supporting document behind the, the permit. Um, that would explain how we incorporate those TMDL limits into the, uh, into the permit as a water quality based limit. Jeff, let me head back to you. I want to talk about the accomplishments of the NPDES program globally, like a, as the whole country, right, as a big picture uh, over the first 50 years of the Clean Water Act. What would you, I mean, a lot of progress in the NPDES program over the first 50 years, right? A lot of permits written, you, you touched on it a little bit, but what would you say are the biggest accomplishments of the program through the first 50 years? I, I think uh, getting technology in place and, and also I think uh, building off the ELG is the, the, the national part of this, even though the states run the vast majority of these uh, uh, are delegated to run the most of these programs, 
that idea that everybody's got to be equal in the country was important to just keep everybody from racing the big rivers just to, to pollute big rivers. So I think that idea of making it even so every an electro manufacturer, electroplater in California has to meet the same standards as an electroplater in Rhode Island or, or North Carolina. I, I think that that leveling the playing field and making sure that everybody had secondary technology, uh, secondary treatment where, where they weren't just removing uh, uh, solids where everybody's doing activated sludge and, and getting those technologies in place everywhere is the is the key. Everybody's under a permit now. We we know, and, and we've also we've uh, pushed pushed a lot of people towards non discharge options or um, where where they're, where they're uh, spraying on the fields to create another layer of protection where it's uh, sprayed on crops instead of directly directly discharges. So if there's if there's failures, there's a little bit of a, a buffer there. So the greatest accomplishment really is just getting it implemented everywhere and, and consistently implemented and consistently carried out everywhere and understanding and, and the sampling to support that gave us an idea of the health of the rivers, uh, which, you know, guides the whole program, the, the 319 list, which is the list of water bodies that aren't meeting their limits, aren't, aren't meeting one of their, some of their uses, whether uh, for ecosystems or, or or a single pollutant where we, we can focus on that single pollutant. We, we know where that is now. We can focus on that single pollutant. We've had some 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 great uh, successes over the years of working with an industry or, or city to get a specific pollutant out of uh, out of their uh, waste stream or down to a level where they can uh, not have as a great an effect on the uh, on the water body. Yeah, Jeff, that list you mentioned, the 303D list, we talked about that a couple episodes back. And then, of course, the other three, number 319, we will talk about next episode when we talk about non-point sources of pollution. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I said 303. At 319. I meant 303. Sorry. Um, yep, yep. Sorry. It's so many uh, sections of the Water Act in my head. You know. So, so Joe, I want to ask you the same question. What, From your perspective, uh, what do you see, big picture-wise, were the, the, some of the biggest accomplishments of the NPDES program specifically in the first 50 years of the Clean Water Act? Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, first of all, I, I think it's important to kind of put it as a frame of reference, um, you know, where we were 50 years ago prior to the Clean Water Act and, you know, kind of the uh, the poster child or the, you know, the kind of the spark that everyone likes to put out there is the Cayuga River catching on fire. Um, you know, that was not an isolated incident for either the Cayuga River or other rivers in, in the country. Um, you know, in the late 60s, I think that the public was starting to realize that, uh, you know, the indiscriminate dumping of industrial wastes and, uh, you know, municipal wastewater into rivers without sufficient treatment was unacceptable, you know, and, and ultimately, you know, was this image of rivers catching on fire that really, I think, galvanized uh, public and political um, opinions that you know, we need to control this. So, you know, you kind of get from that point 50 years ago, how do we get to today where, you know, a lot of water bodies, they're, you know, they're reopening to swimming, shell fishing, fishing, um, you know, for, for decades where they hadn't been able to sustain those uses. I would agree with uh, what Jeff mentioned earlier. You know, the first one that I, that I think of is secondary treatment standards. Uh, so secondary treatment is is basically an ELG or effluent limitation guideline for municipal wastewater treatment facilities. And it was really what got uh, these, you know, what what made a municipal treatment facilities um, 
you know, so that's the treatment facilities in, in your towns and cities, you know, receive when you flush the toilet in your home, receive that wastewater also receives any, you know, industrial commercial wastewater is going into the sewers and the streets, you know, receives that wastewater and treats it. That secondary treatment, uh, ELG, if you will, really establish the minimum requirements so that people are no longer just dumping, um, you know, wastewater with uh, sewage with maybe minimal treatment. Typically, screening would be all that they would have done, you know, 50 years ago, just so that they're, you know, you don't have floatables and, and large pollutants in the waste stream. Up to today, you know, everyone's doing uh, full uh, primary treatment, secondary treatment, which is biological treatment and uh, disinfection. Um, just as a, a frame of reference, uh, you know, if you look back in, in Rhode Island, which is small state centered around the ocean, our, our state motto is the ocean state. So I think historically everyone was aware of the, uh, the value of, of the ocean. You know, it's critical to our local economy in terms of there's a lot of uh, fishing, shell fishing, tourism. Historically, it's always been the state. But, you know, even if you go back to the, say, the 60s, only half, less than actually, less than half of our uh, municipal treatment facilities were doing secondary treatment. Uh, so what that means is, you know, some of those facilities may have only been doing the, the screening that I was mentioning earlier. You get to today, all of the treatment facilities are, are achieving secondary treatment. And if you look across the country, there's gonna be a similar, um, similar statistic. So that's the first one, secondary treatment. Just a couple other ones that I think I would add to, the, to that. Um, you know, Jeff kind of mentioned earlier the industrial pretreatment program. I think that while not maybe necessarily directly MPDES, it's kind of a, an offshoot of the MPDES program in that it's regulating those indirect discharges. So those industrial facilities that discharge into the sewer collection system, ultimately going out to your municipal treatment plant. You know, that was really the, the next phase. Uh, and that really kind of, I think, kicked in the late 80s through the 90s, maybe the early 2000s. And that really started regulating those uh, industrial discharges. One of the pollutants I would, would like to kind of uh, focus on specifically would be metals. So, you know, you would have metal finishing facilities, textile facilities um, that had historically discharged the sewer systems with minimal, uh, if any, pretreatment. You know, that industrial pretreatment program then established treatment requirements for those facilities to make sure that they were not impacting uh, the municipal treatment plants or the downstream uh, water bodies. And then the third uh, one that I would identify, kind of third and last one that I did identify as one of the biggest accomplishments, although there are many others, I would say CSO control. So CSO is a combined sewer overflows. So a lot of the older uh, urbanized areas, when they originally built their sewer systems or their collection systems, they put stormwater and wastewater into the same pipe. And then just, you know, oftentimes it was originally built just to convey it out of the city. So they would oftentimes originally just discharge to the surface with, with no treatment at all. And then when the Clean Water Act came into place, you know, the first step was, okay, instead of discharging untreated, put on a municipal treatment plant. Well, the problem is that certainly works great during dry weather. However, you know, when you get larger storms or, you know, even some of them relatively moderate, modest sized storms, uh, those treatment systems would be overwhelmed because now in addition to your normal wastewater flow from uh, residential, commercial, industrial businesses, 
uh, you had a bunch of stormwater flowing into those pipes that would just overwhelm uh, those, those treatment systems uh, and either at the treatment plant or re result in these what's called combined sewer overflows, which are basically relief points in the sewer system. So that's kind of the, the latest one uh, where I'd say in the, the 90s, 2000s, and, and then through today, you know, a lot of these, again, older urbanized areas with these combined sewer systems, um, they're eliminating those untreated CSO discharges and either capturing them, sending them downstream to the treatment plant, separating out the stormwater so it doesn't overwhelm the sewer system, or installing satellite treatment systems for those CSOs. So those are three, I think, major component, you know, major accomplishments, I'd say, during the first uh, 50 years, secondary treatment, industrial pretreatment, and CSO control. Well, Joe, let me stick with you, and I want to ask you specifically about your career. You say you've been with the state you know, over 20 years, you've, you've worked on a lot of projects. And so during that time, what would you say are one or two projects that you're particularly proud of that, that you would uh, like to highlight here as your big, your personal biggest accomplishments in this program? Sure. Yeah. Um, first of all, let me, let me just kind of say it, it's, I, I would really characterize it more of, of the department's, um, you know, the, the agency's accomplishments, because certainly uh, you know, I'm a, a play a, a role in the accomplishments, but there's many people before me, many other programs that we coordinate on on these successes. So uh, I want to say that um, maybe it's not my biggest career accomplishment alone, but it's the biggest career accomplishment that I was a part of. Uh, so just kind of put that up, up out there first. But I'll I'll touch on two of them. Uh, the first one is uh, we've uh, recently. When I say recently in 2017 and 2021, we're able to reopen uh, several uh, areas that were previously closed to shellfishing for over 70 years in the state. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, Rhode Island being the ocean state, shellfishing is a very big business uh, in the state. Uh, to give you kind of a frame of reference, uh, Narragansett Bay, which receives um, the vast majority of our, our wastewater discharges, is a 147 square mile uh, estuary. Uh, so shellfishing, fishing is very, very important to uh, the local economy, both for commercial fishing, but also as part of the tourism industry. So, you know, as a result of the numerous uh, accomplishments that I mentioned earlier, Secondary treatment was critical because that required everyone to put on secondary treatment and disinfection of their municipal wastewater. CSO control, it was capturing uh, you know, millions of gallons a year that would overflow untreated every time it rained or you know, any time there was a substantial rain. Um, capturing those and requiring the treatment of those Again, in, in 2017, we actually opened, just have the numbers here, uh, 3,700, so that's 3,700 acres uh, to shell fishing that hadn't been uh, used for shell fishing for over 75 years. And then again, in 2021, we were able to open an additional uh, 1,900 acres to shell fishing. So cumulatively, you know, you're looking at, uh, you know, close to 6,000 uh, acres. Uh, that were open to shell fishing that hadn't that had been closed prohibited to shell fishing for over 70 years and you might say what does that you know what's the net impact of that mean well last year alone just the, the opening of that i don't have the f 
figures for the first uh, 3,700 acres we opened because we didn't break it out that way. Um, but the first year that we opened uh, the second 1,900 acres, first year it resulted in uh, over 4 million cohogs being harvested that year alone uh, for those days. Uh, in the second year, it was even more. So we're, we're rough, we're getting, I look, crunch the numbers, we're getting roughly, you know, a half a million cohogs per day that is open to shellfishing. It's not open every day because you need to control fishing pressures, but it's half a million cohogs per day being harvested. And that's a, you know, that's a direct, that has a direct impact on the economy. So that's the first one uh, I just want to highlight. Second one I just want to highlight is, has been some uh, delisting. So you mentioned the TMDL program earlier. So we had a couple of major rivers in the state, uh, the Blackstone River and the Patuxet River, that were both listed on the impaired waters list, the 303D list, as impaired for dissolved oxygen and total phosphorus. You know, we implemented a nutrient reduction uh, control strategy you know, that started in, in, in and around 2000. We actually controlled plants for nitrogen discharges and phosphorus discharges. Uh, the net result of that is between, you know, that early 2000 timeframe and present day, there's been a 74% reduction in nitrogen discharges and a greater than 90% reduction in phosphorus discharges from our largest municipal wastewater treatment plants. And that's actually enabled us to remove those two water bodies uh, from that impaired waters list. Uh, the Blackstone River was actually removed, uh, had the DO and total phosphorus impairments removed in 2018. And the Pawtuxet River had its total phosphorus impairment removed in 2022, and its DO impairment was removed a little early than that in, in 2008. Um, so, you know, I think those are a couple of, of you know, success stories that, that really demonstrate why it's important to spend these monies to upgrade treatment plans, to control CSOs, um, you know, and it, it shows that it has a, a real world impact um, to, you know, not only from a, an aesthetic standpoint, but also economic standpoint. That's great. Jeff, I want to go to you. I want to talk about North Carolina and your career. So what do you think are a couple of biggest career accomplishments that you'd like to highlight? Uh, we have a, a similar nutrient story in North Carolina. Back in, back in the late 90s, we had a, a red tide and some some harmful algal blooms that actually were uh, pretty, pretty bad. And um, we were the first state to uh, to, to put in a, 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 a program to give uh, nutrient allocations to each of the municipalities and, and accounting for that non-point. We, we've been able to, because the towns you know, took those initial allocations and the requirement to keep cranking those down, a lot of the towns put in biological and cities put in biological nutrient removal. And those basins were able to absorb several million, because North Carolina is a rapidly growing state, have been able to absorb millions of, of new residents and, and associated industries and all that and, and have the, the estuaries uh, that, that we also have estuaries that, that produce shellfishing and all that. They have... They've been impacted, but not, you know, they've held their own and actually improved in a lot of ways. When, when you consider that we've added all those, that the nutrient, the nutrient program is a real, a real success in terms of getting people to, you know, to treat that as a, a commodity was originally supposed to be where they could trade, trade the nutrients up and down the river to, uh, to, um, you know, drive everybody lower, but that it's a little difficult. We have had some, some good trades, but also coal ash was, was a, a big thing that happened here and nationwide. 
in 2014, we kind of kicked it off with a, 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 one of the dams failed at a, at a large power plant. And, and for the last 50 years, those, those uh, coal burning power plants had just been sort of dumping the coal in the back 40. And uh, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of, of leaching of, of those into the, into the water bodies. And I, I, we had to go through and really assess the whole situation and get, get the sampling. And, and, and I think one of the uh, elements of talking about the 50 years of the, of the NPDES program is it requires a lot of patience and the public isn't necessarily tuned into the need to have patience, but it took us years to get, understand the problem with, with the metals leaching from the coal ash to, to get uh, special orders or enforcement tools in place, get the engineers to design systems and, and the, the removal of, of the ash. And I think that's one of the, the things that's uh, great about the NPDES program is it, you know, it's, it sticks with it. It takes some time to get all those controls into place because the, the technologies are complex and, and large and you can't just install them overnight, but we, we fixed the coal ash problem. You know, it's, it's, it's going to take, you know, a few more years to get it all moved around and, and the nutrients, the harmful algal blooms are still, you know, a problem everywhere, but they're, they're, they're not the problem they would be had we not put in that, some of that biological nutrient removal. We have a, a buffer program in, in North Carolina, which, you know, mixes land use with NPDS that, that, uh, that to, to control some of that non-point, source pollution and allow a uh, moving of, of some pounds of uh, nutrients of relative nutrients back and forth between if they put in some non-point controls then maybe you can have a little bit of a little a few more pounds to uh discharge into the river and and making that a a win for both sides of the situation so we could go on with uh, uh we have a emerging pollutants uh <clears throat> situation and, and uh, we were uh, as part of the uh, some sampling that's done for the safe drinking water act they discovered a 1,4 dioxane which is a solvent stabilizer we, that north carolina's cape fear river had some of the highest concentrations in the country or the, uh, the highest concentrations in the country and and through the the power of the npds program we're able to do that ambient monitoring to, to get the the point the uh the, the municipal plants to to do some sampling and find out if it was coming from them and then to a pre-treatment program to go up up the sewage system which is not as easy as you think because some of these these towns have literally thousands of miles of sewer line and and when there's a you know when it's an episodic issue it's hard for us to hard to track that down but we were able to find some of the sources of one four dioxane and now we have orders in place with with a few towns which will lead hopefully to product substitution and new technologies that we had some wins back for, for those of remember the, in the late nineties, when they invented a new mercury sample sampling technique, where we were able to see the mercury at, at a thousand times lower than the previous, uh, previous uh, sampling method. When we found the mercury, we had the, the uh, industries were quick to do product substitution because now that, now that it was required and, and now, you, you know, mercury is not even something people think about much at all, but, that that's the power of the NPDS program and the success is to be able to have these problems like the emerging contaminants now and and then the successes of things like mercury where we were able to once we were able to see it we were able to control it we were able to get some uh, use the program to get uh to get some enforcement mechanisms in place and and then you know the the companies were able to for their own benefit to, to save money and to protect the environment, we're able to uh, to uh, do those product substitutions and, and get some of those pollutants out. So I think that's the the power of the program. Jeff, any final thoughts? 
Yeah, yeah. Just uh, the, the echoing that that the, the, the uh, we we have to build off these these past history. We're we're struggling with staffing and people getting people to go into this field uh, going forward because it it, it doesn't it pays only moderately, but we have a, a lot of issues ahead and losing all that knowledge of, of the accomplishments we've had over the last 50 years is, is, is important for us to, to build from that and understand uh, how, how that happens so that they can, they can leverage that. And real quick, uh, I, I would just say one of the challenges, you know, you know, final thought is I think we have to be careful that we don't become a victim of our success. You know, I think a lot of people, uh, they look at the water bodies now and, and think that they were always uh, the quality, water, you know, achieving the quality that they are today. And, and really that's not the case. If you go back, we're talking very relatively short period of time, 20, 30 years, it was drastically different. So I think that's you know one of the things we have to make sure that we publicize. You know, It took a lot of uh, effort and, and money to get to this level uh, to make sure that people don't lose sight of the fact that you know, it does take uh, time, effort, money to maintain uh, the good water quality that, that we're achieving nowadays. Great. Thanks. We'll leave it there, guys. Joe and Jeff, thank you so much for your time. And thanks for coming on to the Clean Water Pod. Thank you. Anytime. That's episode six and another great conversation about the Clean Water Act in the books. Next episode, we'll cover non-point sources of pollution and how the Clean Water Act deals with that. I've got two more great guests lined up for you as we talk about the last piece of the Clean Water Act in next month's episode. If you have any questions about this or future episodes, please get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at CleanWaterPod or send me an email at CleanWaterPod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, what questions you have, and what you'd like to hear of the pod. Until next time, thanks for listening.